It's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Brett Bradshaw, and I have the great privilege and joy of serving here in the area of spiritual formation, which is very simply following our Lord Jesus Christ, um, being with one another, setting our eyes on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and walking in his way, seeking to open up his word that we might not just know about God, but truly come to know him, even as we are already fully known. One of my earliest experiences, I guess probably my earliest experience of this church was through men's Bible study. This is over nine years ago, even before I was a member here, or, uh, I was new to Dallas, Bill Lambert invited me to men's Bible study. And in that, the seed that the Lord planted in that um, studying of God's word with probably some, some men that are in this room, uh, that, that fruit has continued to grow and develop, and I would have never uh, have dreamed or imagined that I would be here on a stage speaking to you all. And so thank you for um, being here. Thank you for turning your attention to God's word with me, and I pray that this would be a time of mutual blessing. I'm um, I'm a fellow journeyer with you. I seek to invite us into a conversation together on God's word, that we might hear it, and we take it into our minds, pray that the Lord would work and soak it down into our hearts, and that as we leave this place and go into our various occupations out in the city, whether you're in law or oil and gas, finance, your teacher, or medical provider, that we might see all of that as response to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us, and we'll read our scripture this morning, and then enter into a bit of conversation together about Psalm 133. Let me pray. Oh God of heaven and earth, we give you thanks for this morning. Lord, each person that is in this room, each man that's here, uh, including myself, you gave us the ability to get out of bed this morning. Lord, what a gift. You gave us lungs that can take in air and breathe. Lord, what an incredible gift. You've given us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, what an incredible gift. You've given us transportation to leave our homes and to arrive here in this place. An incredible gift. You've given us your word. Spoken to your and through your servants. Revealed through your son, Jesus Christ. Passed on through the church over thousands of years. In such a way that we now have it bound before us. Lord, what an incredible gift. You've given us teachers over the course of our life who taught us to read. You've given us men and women who have loved us, who taught us that Jesus loves us, and this we know for the Bible tells us so. Oh, what a gift. So, Lord, we come into this time as recipients of incredible grace. Lord, may we not miss that gift. Lord, I confess that it's so easy to 
be accustomed to the rhythms of life in the church and allow something like a Bible study just to be something that we do, or I do. Um, but Lord, may this be a morning that you would renew in us a love for Christ, a love for your word, and a deep conviction and purpose in living it out and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection in our words and in our deeds. But Lord, we can't hear without you opening up the ears of our hearts, so please, Lord, do that. Lord, we can't understand without your, you revealing your truth to us, so open our minds. Lord, transform the habits of our bodies, that everything that we do, we say, we think, we feel, would be in the imitation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May this time be a participation in the building up of your church and receiving and enjoying, celebrating the unity we have in Christ. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Maybe I can talk a little bit louder. <laughs> uh, I mean, a confession to you, I would far rather be sitting at the table with you having a conversation or uh, over lunch or coffee talking to you one-on-one uh, than I would be up here. But I do enjoy the opportunity to open up God's Word together. Um, you know, I've, I, Julian Russell spoke last week, and uh, I've been around here long enough to know that uh, his reputation is to... or his um, reputation is having the voice of God. Well, I'm, I'm not that. <laughs> uh, well, the psalm uh, w- this morning is Psalm 133. And brothers, um, these words are the voice of God. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So I wonder if you saw your country, our great country, the United States of America, we celebrated our independence recently, if you thought our country was going into a way, in a direction of moral, political, social disaster, where, where would you start? How would you begin to resist that? How would you begin to work against that? Well, in 1935, there was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who before... World War II, before the world knew of the atrocities that would come through Nazi Germany, two years into Adolf Hitler becoming the, um, the functional dictator of Germany, he started with these words, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. He started with those words, worked out, in Christian community, as a small, as only 25 of them, a small community of Christians committed to living out God's word in the midst of a remarkably dangerous and increasingly divisive situation. 
And I find that um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is not us. Those are, Nazi Germany is not our time. But we do live in a time of division. Division within us and division outside of us. And so how might we, this morning, enter into these words that were so meaningful at that time and begin to see them as spoken to us? Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There's a short novella by Norman MacLean called A River Runs Through It, and it's really it's a, it's a tragedy, but a subtle redemptive tragedy about a Presbyterian pastor and his two sons living in Montana. And the picture of unity that they have in that story is, is fly fishing. The older brother is a master fly fisherman, the, the Presbyterian minister, the pastor that's taught his sons. He's a master fly fisherman. And at one point in the story, uh, the last time that the brothers get to fish together, the older brother is, is catching, as he always does, and the younger brother uh, isn't catching anything. And the younger brother asks him, you know, how is it that you can catch fish when I can't? And he says, well, all there is to thinking is seeing something that's noticeable, which makes you see something you hadn't noticed, which makes you see something which isn't even visible. And I think that, that those words give us a good path for us to travel together as we enter into the psalm, to see something noticeable, which is brothers dwelling together in unity, which makes you see something they hadn't been noticing, the abundant grace, the sacred holiness of unity, the life-giving force that it is, which makes you see something that isn't even visible, that Christ is our unity, the life forevermore. The first words of this psalm are behold, behold. <clears throat> We're all in Texas, in Dallas this morning, so to put it into a little bit of Texan, well, would you look at that? <laughs> or maybe you can hear your, your grandfather saying, boy, it's a sight to be seen, let me tell you. What it's saying is pay attention to this. It's something truly spectacular. I remember reading the stories of uh, the first people who received sight after the invention of cataract surgery. These were adults who had been blinded from birth with cataract surgery. And when they received sight, many of them were overwhelmed by the sight. And sadly, some of them refused to open their eyes, refused to see. But there was young, one young woman, this tells the, the account of her experience, that she opened up her eyes and was overwhelmed by the world's brightness. And she closed her eyes for two weeks. But when she finally opened her eyes, the more and more she looked around her, an expression of gratitude overspread her features, and she kept, kept saying, Oh God, how beautiful. Oh God, how beautiful. And this psalm opens with this word, behold, that we might turn our thinking to God's word into something that we can notice, brothers dwell in the unity, and proclaim, oh God, how beautiful. The psalm says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant. <clears throat> this is language that echoes back to Genesis and God creating the world, everything. The heavens and the earth, which means everything and this and that and everything in between. 
And it says over and over and over again, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. It's the same word here, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Brothers dwelling together in unity is good. This word pleasant can mean delightful, beautiful. It's because it's what we're made for. The Genesis account says we are made in the image of God. And our God is one God in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as people made in his image, we are made for relationship, made for relationship with God, with one another, and with his creation. So it's good. It's delightful. It's pleasant. Because it's it's truly living when we live together in unity. But it doesn't take much for us to look at our own lives and observe in the world and maybe put, write our own psalm that would be a little bit more true to our own experience, which would be, hey, look here. How awful and gut-wrenching it is when brothers are at, their own, at each other's throats. We all... We all can know in our own experience with our own brothers or family members or with business partners or even within the church how awful it is when there's conflict, when there's division, when there's backfighting. And this is the story. If we have goodness and the pleasantness of unity with God in Genesis 1 and 2, it doesn't take long after Genesis 3 in the fall to find brothers at, at each other's throats. The first brothers we have are Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. Jacob Jacob cheats his brother Esau out of his inheritance. How many of our conflicts in our families revolve around inheritance? Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And even fast-forwarding to the New Testament, Jesus' brothers think he's crazy. And the division goes on in our families, in our country, in our friendships, in our marriages, with our children. You know, it seems that we keep creating more and more sophisticated ways of dividing one another. Uh, religion, country, uh, sexuality, gender, uh, age, um, socioeconomic status. So some of the men that uh, I respect and admire most are my grandfathers. And I never thought of them in a, uh, as a demographic. I thought of them as men who loved me. And I never once heard them call me a millennial, which I am. But I never once heard them say that. They called me Brett. And they loved me. And I love them. But our unity was love. So we keep creating more and more sophisticated ways of dividing one another, but I have yet seen an even simple way outside of the church of pursuing unity. Broken trust, broken relationships are the very pit of sin, and it's not the way that the world is supposed to be. So this psalm says, behold, it calls us back to our original purpose of relationship, of unity with God, how good and pleasant it is when brothers Dwell together in unity. 
putting forward something that we can notice. A picture, a little glimpse of brothers being in peace with one another that we might see something that we weren't noticing. So the psalm extends our thinking upon unity through two similes. I'll take you back to your English class, or maybe you, some of you are English teachers, but it's two similes. Simile uses the word like or as. What a simile does is it works from the outside of something that we know and are familiar with to draw us to the inside of something that we're unfamiliar with or we don't know. So the psalm reads, It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And it goes on to say, It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So the two similes that we have here are precious oil and the dew of Hermon. But first, the precious oil. We are in Dallas. This is Texas. So I thought it might be good for us to clarify this is not Texas tea we're talking about. Uh, although it is, it is precious, uh, like black gold. What, is, what the picture here is the holy anointing oil that God tells Moses to anoint the priests with and the tabernacle. It's a perfume. It has liquid myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, uh, aromatic uh, cassia, and uh, cane. It's mixed together with olive oil. And in Leviticus 8, when everything else in the tabernacle is sprinkled with holy oil, Aaron gets it poured over his head. And the picture is of a holiness, a set, being set apart, a graciousness, an abundant, extravagant graciousness being poured out by God onto his priest, his representative. So what we have here in this picture of precious oil being poured over the head is a picture of extravagant grace, an abundant mercy to make holy, to make sacred, something beyond what anyone deserves or expects. It is like the precious oil on the head. Some of these similes can be a bit, what would be totally normal for a Jew to hear, and I got it, can be a bit foreign for us. Within the church, we have baptism, which gets at the beauty and the picture and the powerfulness, the power of God's rich, abundant grace being poured out. But in secular culture, I don't know. I had a hard, really hard time thinking about what type of metaphor picture we would have. Maybe the closest thing that we would have would be Tom Brady being showered with the confetti and uh, the champagne flowing. It's a, it's a celebration of God's rich, abundant goodness and mercy being poured out. But the difference in those pictures of, of confetti and champagne and winning a Super Bowl or celebrating like that is that that was earned. This anointing is God pouring out his blessing, something beyond what's expected, beyond anything that we could, be, could be deserved or earned. And the next simile that we see is it's like the dew of Hermon. 
which falls on the mountains of Zion. Hermon is the highest mountain in that part of the world today. If you want to go skiing in that, in that region, the only place to go is Mount Hermon. It rises over 9,000 feet in the Lebanon range north of Israel. It's uh, snow-covered. Um, it's the only place that's snow-covered. I haven't been there, so I had to research this. Uh, so if you're an expert at geography of this area, then please um, chime in. But the image is the life-giving nourishment that dew is onto, into the land. It says in Hosea 14.5, God says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. What we have here is life-giving nourishment of alpine dew. It is a life-giving force by God doing for the land and for the people through that land what they couldn't do for themselves. If you live in an agrarian society, which in many ways these people did, you are dependent on rain. You are dependent on dew. Many of us don't <clears throat> depend in the same way on rain and dew. We do. We have to have food, and uh, many of us buy it at a grocery store. But that came from farmers and workers working the land with those dependent on rain, dependent on uh, God's provision through the natural world. But oftentimes we don't make that connection because our work lives are, for many of us, in, the, in an office, working out um, in Excel spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations and phone calls and emails. But all that work is for um, producing goods and services uh, into the world. And that work doesn't happen without cash flow. It's like blood to the system. And oftentimes we get confused and think our work is about the ca just the cash flow, but cash flow is like blood. It pumps through the organization to allow it to run. And this dew, the dew of Hermon, is like blood pumping through by God's gracious work into the society to be a life-giving force. So it's a grace, an abundant grace poured out by God, an anointing of oil, I'm like the dew of Hermon. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as he's reflecting on speaking to Christians, he says this. He says, let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace that we are allowed in community with Christian brothers. And that's what we have here in these two similes, two pictures of abundant grace that becomes a life-giving force. So what we've, think, what we've thought upon in this psalm of seeing something that's noticeable, brothers dwelling together in unity, that draws our attention to see something that we hadn't been noticing, the sacred abundance of unity and the life-giving force that it is, if we keep looking, will draw us to see something that isn't even visible. But Jesus Christ is our unity, the life forevermore. The psalm continues... For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So even though we 
see in our everyday reality great division, division in our country, division across social media channels, division on our TVs. I mean, TV runs off in many ways conflict. We're invited into a different story, a story of unity, not a unity that we can muster up on our own strength. We see over and over again over in history that trying to pursue unity and peace without help from the outside turns into corruption, division, and violence. But as Christians, we're invited to a unity received from the outside. Jesus Christ is our unity. If we read this psalm looking from the resurrection backwards, we begin to see something we hadn't been noticing and even beginning to see something that's not even visible. The Jews knew the goodness and beauty of God because it was something that they prayed from sitting on their mama's lap. It'd be as familiar to them as Jesus loves me, this I know is for us, maybe even more so. Because they prayed in Deuteronomy, which we receive in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's called the Shema. And then Paul picks up this prayer and adapts it. And he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Jesus Christ is our unity. He is the one who united our greatest pain, our sin, the world's greatest pain, and what we were made for, our greatest joy along the cross beams of of a Roman execution instrument. But then he rose from the dead. And what was meant to be death, division, became the force of union. Union with God once again through Christ and by his spirit. We see that in Jesus Christ before he went to the cross, a woman goes and pours perfume all over his head. And his disciples didn't get it. They said, what are you doing? Don't you know that this could have been sold and given to the poor? And what does Jesus say? He says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She's done something beautiful. She's done something beautiful. She's prepared me for my burial. She's done what she could. I had never, never noticed those words before in reading that psalm. She, she did what she could. And I think that that's a good word for us, a hopeful word for us. She did what she could. I have two little girls. And they're four and two. And so they're still so precious. They live together in unity most of the time. But I've been around enough mature dads to know that that, that precious unity of childhood, um, sadly, uh, turns to many times to division. 
and even many of, I would imagine some of us, uh, some of you know that the pain and the gut-wrenching awfulness when children are not, no longer walking with the Lord. We experience the division in our own families. We experience division in our marriages and families divorcing one another. We experience division in our business relationships that those we <coughs> thought we trusted and formed a business partnership with find uh, self-seeking, backfighting. We find division in, inside the church. The church splits. The church divides. And I, I, I see that it's, sometimes it's not even the big things like a church division, but it's the little things, the little nagging comments, the little criticisms, the little, con- the little conversations on the way back out of church of, I can't believe you said that, or did you see so-and-so? Um, what if we turned our criticisms and our naggings first to prayer? God, thank you for this servant of the Lord. Thank you for this brother or sister in Christ. There may still be a need to speak to a brother or sister the truth and love, but what if we turned our criticisms and our complaints first to praise, to thanksgiving, and to blessing? Because Jesus Christ is our unity. He's the fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy, the dew of Israel and the living water. And on the night before he was crucified, he blessed us with this prayer. In John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, so I don't ask for just these, these men here sitting with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And Paul picks up this prayer, keeps praying it, and translates it into a message to the Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 4, 1, 6, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What is that? What does it mean to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One of the first things that I noticed coming to this church in worship, Mark Davis got up and said, how many churches are in Dallas? And I was thinking, well, there's like thousands of churches in Dallas. And he said, nope, one. The true, the true church of Jesus Christ. And though we may worship in different locations, though we may come from different theological backgrounds, For all those who are in Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters united under his lordship and in his kingdom. And for those of us who are members of this church, we are brothers called to love one another in humility, with gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love. Jesus Christ is our unity. He is the true blessing and the life forevermore. He is our peace. He is our elder brother. He is the dwelling place of God in human flesh and blood. He is the image of the invisible God, the preview of the, world, the way the world will be. And even though that we live in a world of intense division, our unity is in Christ. And the unity that we can experience in little tastes and little samples and little glimpses here and there within the brotherhood that we have with one another in the church points forward to that day when there will be perfect unity because Christ will have made all things new in the new heavens and the new earth. And so to close, I want us to go back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a, is a sinner saved by grace like all of us. But his example gives us a little picture of someone who sought not just to know the word, but to follow the word when there was a great temptation to assimilate or to retreat. I don't know if you know this, but he had a chance to come to the United States and stay here. But he chose to go back to Germany to be a witness to Christ in the midst of an incredibly, increasingly dangerous situation. He was ultimately arrested. <clears throat> There's a British officer who was in prison with him and said these words of him. He said, Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I have ever met from whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8th, 1945, so 10 years after the founding of Life Together, those words, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of us all. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment, the thoughts and the resolutions it had brought us. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That only had one meaning for all prisoners, the gallows. We said goodbye to him. He took me aside and said, this is the end. But for me, it's the beginning of life. The next day, he was hanged in Flossingburg. This psalm, Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell to, together in unity. Something that we can notice, the goodness and the beauty of living together in peace with one another makes us to see something that we weren't noticing. That it's not just a, a value or an ideal. It's a gracious gift to be received from God. It's like oil being poured on the head. It's an abundant, extravagant gift. And it's a life-giving force, like the dew of Hermon. And if we keep looking at what something, at something that we can notice, and go beyond what we hadn't been noticing. We can see something that we don't see that well in our normal everyday experience, but is the truest reality of the whole world, that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is our unity. He is the life forevermore. 
So brothers, as we conclude this time this morning and enter into conversation around our table, what I ask you to do is before talking about this psalm, before entering into a conversation about it, please pray. Pray and thank God for the unity that we have in Christ. And pray that that unity would grow and increase in this church and in the church around the world. And then enter into a conversation about what it might mean for our lives to, to live this out. And I've offered one suggestion of a practice to do this week. This is, an, this is not a thus saith the Lord by any means, but it is an idea, a practice, to simply find someone in our church that you don't know very well, invite them to lunch, and get to know them. Because it's really hard to be in unity, to experience the unity that we have, to cultivate and grow it if we don't know one another. It's just a simple practice of being practicing cultivating the unity we have, to experience receiving and cultivating this unity we have in Christ. And to close, I want to allow these words from our brother, the Apostle Paul, to call us forward into our unity in Christ and to launch us out of this place to be that unity in the world of the great division. These words come from 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. Let them be as a benediction to us all. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one with one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.